Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Guilty verdict. Signed by the four lady, 3-2-23. And we had no doubt that if we had a chance to present our case in a court of law, that they would see through the one last con that Alec Murdoch was trying to pull. And they did, and we're so grateful for that. Well, wow, wow. what a night. So quick. So fast. What a night. Uh, We'll get into all of it. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday. We are glad you're with us. It took that jury less than three hours to reach a verdict. Alec Murdoch found guilty of murdering his own wife and son just hours from now. The sentencing plus this. It just came up. 20 seconds later, it was gone. And I mean, total chaos. Wind, I mean, glass breaking out everywhere. First first tornado I've ever been in. What is with this weather lately? Tornadoes ripping through Texas, my home state of Louisiana as well. And the severe weather threat isn't over yet. For millions of Americans, we have correspondents live on the ground. We also have this for you. I'm begging you, by the grace of God, You can hear the outrage and desperation. It's boiling over in East Palestine, Ohio, as families are demanding to be evacuated and relocated from their own hometown, a town they say is no longer safe a month after that toxic train derailment. But first, in just a couple of hours, disgraced South Carolina attorney Alex Murdoch will be sentenced after a jury dealt a swift blow and convicted him of murdering his wife and son. Eleven jurors deliberated for less than three hours before pronouncing Murdoch guilty. He now faces a potential life sentence behind bars. The prosecution team praising the justice system after the ruling was handed down. Their voice was heard tonight and justice was brought for them. We can't bring them back, but we can bring them justice. Today's verdict proves that no one, no one, no matter who you are in society, is above the law. That is the Attorney General uh, of South Carolina. Let's go to South Carolina where our Diane Gallagher is live. You've been covering this trial. Diane, wow. Beyond a reasonable doubt, guilty in less than three hours. Unanimous decision by those 12 jurors taking less than three hours. And what you heard the attorney general talking about there, accountability, the fact that no one is above the law, that's the reason why there are already members of the public lined up outside the courthouse to get a chance to see Alec Murdoch be sentenced for killing his wife and son. Guilty, verdict, verdict, guilty, verdict, guilty, verdict, guilty. Alec Murdoch, a scion from a prominent local family of lawyers and solicitors, found guilty of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul after just three hours of jury deliberations. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or people think you have. It doesn't matter what you think, how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, 
If you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. The jury was seen with their heads down, never looking in Murdoch's direction as the verdict was read. The prominent former attorney's only living son, Buster, was present in the courtroom while the guilty verdict was read, appearing at times to wipe tears from his eyes. After the guilty verdict came down, the judge denied a motion from the defense asking for a mistrial and to set aside the verdict. The evidence of guilt is overwhelming and uh, I deny the motion. The prosecution has indicated they will be seeking a life sentence without the possibility of parole, sparing him the death penalty. The case wrapped up earlier Thursday with the defense's closing arguments, attempting one last time to poke holes in the state's case. Their theory is that he slaughtered his wife and son to distract from an impending financial investigation. But he puts himself in the middle of a murder investigation and he puts himself in the spotlight of a media firestorm. And further slamming the investigation. We believe that we've shown conclusively that SLED failed miserably in investigating this case. The jury was unswayed by this defense, favoring the prosecution's argument that Murdoch was the only one with the motive, means and opportunity to kill his wife and son. He did it. Nobody else could have done it. Nobody else did do it. Over the roughly six-week trial, the prosecution presented its case featuring testimony from 61 witnesses with phone forensics and extensive evidence of Murdoch's financial misdeeds. Our criminal justice system worked tonight. It gave a voice to Maggie and Paul Murdoch. And that is what the members of the public who are already here want to see. They want to see that sentencing, which is scheduled to begin around 9.30 this morning. The state saying they are not going to seek the death penalty, but they are going to seek life in prison without parole. The judge can uh, make that determination anywhere between 30 years and that life sentence for those murder charges. Again, people essentially just wanting to see this, Poppy. Uh, Alec Murdoch didn't really make any sort of movements when he was found guilty. When they read those verdicts out, he just sort of shook his head, yeah. had a blank face, and briefly sort of mouthed some words to his son, Buster. But that was it. We'll see if we have that same reaction this morning when he is sentenced. We do expect there to be uh, family victim impact statements as well. I was just going to ask that. That is always a very powerful and important thing to see. Diane, thank you very much. I want to bring you now CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson. Joey, good morning to you. Look, morning. you know your way around a courtroom. Yeah. You never know with these, but I mean, is this fast to you? Were you surprised? It was indeed, right? <clears throat> you have a six-week trial, and of course, the, ju the judge constantly instructs the jury as to don't talk about the case, don't render any conclusions, don't make any final decisions, wait until deliberations. That being said, obviously, the jury, as they're locked into the case, listening to the testimony throughout that time, had formulated some firm opinions with respect to what they believe. Having said that, I didn't think those firm opinions would come back three hours later in a guilty verdict. So it was resounding. It was just a resounding decision that they rejected the narrative of the defense and completely adopted the narrative of the prosecution, at least as to guilt. Yeah. You think it was a mistake for him to take the stand? So, you know what, Caitlin? I, I don't think he had a choice, right? Now, we all have choices, of course. But with respect to that answer, let me tell you why. Remember his denials, denials, denials. Wasn't there, don't know, nothing to see here. So 
when they got evidence which would suggest that he was there, not only the cell phone data, not only the car data, but remember the video where everyone said, hey, that's your voice, I think the defense made the calculation that he needed to explain himself. And in going to explain, you could argue it backfired because he lied just about everyone in his life so the jury could conclude, hey, you know what? You lied to your partners, right. you lied to your family, you looked us in the eye just like them, and you lied to us. One of the things that will be interesting as we look ahead to sentence in a few hours is whether the judge considers mitigating factors or aggravating factors. Can you explain to our viewers what those are and how that could change 30 years to life? Absolutely. So I'll answer it um, in a short and a long way. The short way is (laughs) I don't think the judge is going to consider any mitigation. I think we have a situation here where the jury has rendered a verdict. Remember what the judge does. Throughout the trial, the judge is a referee, ensuring that you have a fair trial, ensuring that justice is done. Once the jury renders a decision and says you're guilty, all bets are off. That judge now has to act, right, as a proxy of the state to administer justice. I think, Poppy, that justice will be administered in a life sentence. That's my view of it. Now, in terms of aggravating factors, I mean... Which can increase one sentence. Yeah, I mean, look, the nature and gravity of the defense... The, uh, of, of the offense, excuse yeah. me, with respect to his conduct. I mean, that's aggravating alone. You kill your wife and your son and you do it in such a graphic, horrific, terrible way. That's aggravating. Now, you could say mitigation is his opioid addiction. Yeah. Mitigation is his service to the community all of his life. Mitigation was the fact that he was a lawyer. Nonsense. I think in a situation like this, it comes down to what is just, what is appropriate, what is right. And I think the law allows for a life sentence. You took two lives. I think he'll be doing potentially multiple life sentences. Wow. I think people can't wait to hear. Obviously, they're lined up outside the courtroom to the sentencing. But um, I think people, I want to hear from the jury. I'd like to know if when they got in, did they take a poll initially and say, what do you think? And everyone said, guilty, guilty, guilty. And they're like, all right, we got it. Let's just move on and do this. You you know what, Don? To that point, I wonder, because the biggest thing, if you speak to most people who follow this, and I would agree, the motive was kind of a disconnect. Was the motive based on this financial motivation and that's why you killed your family? In my view, to your point, Don, and speaking to the jurors, I want to know whether they even cared. Like, they just got to the meat and potatoes. We find the evidence shows you did this. I don't care why you did it or what your rationale was, we are going to make sure we conclude that you're accountable. And so, yes, I'm interested in hearing what they have to say, too. Thank you, Joy Jackson. Of course. Appreciate that. Lots more on this, obviously, here on CNN this morning. Next hour, we're going to be joined by Eric Bland. Eric Bland is representing Gloria Satterfield's family. She is the housekeeper who died on the Murdoch property back in 2018. What he and the Satterfield family think of the verdict that's coming up. And as we wait for that sentencing hearing that's happening this morning, there is outrage, fear, and just plain desperation that is coming to a head in East Palestine during a town hall last night. I'm begging you, by the grace of God, please get our people powerful. Those are residents of East Palestine speaking to officials for Norfolk Southern. These families are demanding to be relocated from their own homes at this emotional meeting. They say they're afraid that their kids, are, they're afraid their kids are gonna get cancer. They don't feel safe living in their own town anymore after a train that was loaded with those toxic chemicals crashed and burned a month ago. Last night, the train company's representative tried to reassure residents, but instead really just got an earful. We are sorry. We're very sorry for it. We feel horrible about it.
start tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Just hear the frustration in their voices. Miguel Marquez is live in East Palestine, Ohio. Miguel, you've been covering this. You know, we heard from the train company's representative there. It's not actually the CEO of the company, I should note. He said that they were ready to start removing that track because obviously they want to excavate the contaminated dirt that's underneath it. That was supposed to happen at 6 a.m. It's now 6.12. Has it started yet? <laughs> well, it... It probably has, but it has been going on for quite some time. I mean, we are as close as you can get to the derailment right now, and they're remediating one area behind us, and then I can see lots of personnel on the other side of the tracks there. In fairness, they have been here since this uh, derailment occurred. The way this is going to happen, this is a plan signed off on by the EPA. Norfolk Southern's going to uh, there's at least two two tracks that go through this area where the derailment happened. They're going to pull up the southern end of it. They're going to they're going to remove those tens of thousands of tons of toxic soil under those southern tracks. They're going to replace it with with fresh earth. Then they're going to put those tracks back on. They're going to do the same thing on the north side of those tracks. Uh, the other thing the EPA is going to force Norfolk Southern to do now is test the air for and the area for dioxins. This is something that uh, residents you know they are upset. They want certain they want answers, and all of those things are hard to come by. But this, the dioxins, uh, possible chemicals, harmful chemicals that were created by the fires from all the other chemicals that burned in that train. And then the other thing happening right now is the NTSB is starting to dig more into this investigation, and they're looking at the tank cars themselves, and they're now issuing an advisory to other freight carriers because when the that fire happened and you had those cars filled with vinyl chloride. They got so hot, the covering of the valve that was meant to vent the car, that melted. It was made of aluminum. That melted, blocking them from being able to vent, which obviates the entire reason for the valve itself. It was supposed to be a, a release valve. That then me meant that they had to do an emergency of venting of those of those cars, which created even a, a bigger problem uh, for, for the air and for residents here. Uh, we expect to see even more work here uh, along the tracks uh, as, as the day goes on. Now that they have that plan uh, in front of them, uh, it is clear that they will they will they will stay very busy. Norfolk Southern say it will be by the end of April when this work will be done. Back to you. Wow, it's almost two months away. I know the CEO is going to be on the hill testifying next week. Miguel Marquez, is that track removal is happening this morning? We'll check back in with you. Thank you. Also, this very powerful storm hitting parts of the South, stirring up large tornadoes. Our Ed Lavender is standing by in Texas. Carlos Suarez in Louisiana. What they are seeing on the ground is next. Look at that. Holy Where's it going? Uh, that way. I mean, my goodness, look at that. A powerful storm packing a triple threat of large hail, damaging winds, and tornadoes tearing through the south. Listen to that. That's storm sirens. They were heard blaring in Dallas as wind gusts 
reach over, reached over 70 miles per hour, knocking out power to thousands of customers and forcing the cancellation of hundreds of flights. A twister also touched down in Louisiana. Louisiana State University campus there was damaged and some homes and businesses were destroyed. Nearly four million people now under a new tornado watch across the Mississippi River Valley. We have team coverage all across the South. Carlos Suarez is in Shreveport, Louisiana, but first we turn to CNN's Dead Lavendera. He's in Little Elm, Texas this morning. My, oh my, Ed, what is, look at behind you. Yeah, this was uh, probably the most extensive damage we've seen because of this storm last night, Don. This was the, the facade of last deck, a meat market, which collapsed last night in those high winds that you're talking about, crushing about a half dozen cars underneath. But by and large, uh, you know, this storm system, which was massive, about 500 miles long, which stretched from San Antonio all the way into southeast Oklahoma, uh, you know, moved through this area very quickly with those high, intense winds. But by and large, you know, most of the area are in this North Texas area unscathed by uh, this, th this storm. So there are still over about 100,000 uh, customers without power uh, because of these high winds knocking over power lines or, or you know, blowing up uh, transformers, that sort of thing. That's the kind of issues that people are dealing with this morning. But the good news is no injuries, no deaths being reported because of this storm. But it's, you know, sheer size and it's the second severe storm outbreak we've seen just this week. We were in Oklahoma earlier this week where we saw those intense high winds. So really this storm serving as a reminder uh, that the spring storm season is off to a very early start, Don. Ed, covering it for us from Texas this morning. Ed Lavendera, thank you. Wow. Okay, so let's go to Louisiana now, Shreveport, where Carlos Suarez is. Carlos, good morning to you. I know, you know, the sun's not up yet, but what's the damage like? Yeah, Poppy and uh, Don, good morning. That tornado that hit here was on the ground for under a minute, and in that time, it damaged a number of homes and businesses. We are in a neighborhood here in Shreveport uh, where that tornado moved through and where we've seen some of the most significant damage. It took out what we believe to be uh, an insurance company, a business out here. You can see the folks already started to clear up some of this debris. It took out that sign. They've already got a tarp out here. Now, the most serious damage that we found on our drive early this morning was this laundromat out here. You can see what we're talking about. Just the roof of this place was taken out. The front side of this business fell on these three cars. That tornado, we're told, again, was on the ground for under a minute. The folks that uh, were interviewed out here told us it was anywhere between 30 to 40 seconds. Now, we, uh, we heard from someone that was inside of this laundromat. Uh, he was telling folks, look, it's too windy out here. The weather did not look good. All of this happened right before that tornado hit. Here's what uh, he told us. That's when the wind started picking up and this lady said, my babies are in the car and she wanted me to help her. And I, and I said, let's go. But then all of a sudden the wind got so bad. I said, no, ma'am, don't go out. And that's her car underneath that sign. If we hadn't got, if we'd gone out there, that baby, I mean, we would have been hit by that sign. Similar to Ed, the good news at this hour is there are no reports of any serious injuries here in Shreveport. In this neighborhood alone, according to the power company, well over a thousand folks are waking up in the dark. Wow. Carlos, Carlos Suarez uh, for us in Shreveport, Louisiana. Thank you for the reporting. Also this morning, the man who the FBI says threatened to kill Jewish government officials in Michigan is going to face a judge in just a matter of hours. We're going to speak to a state representative, Samantha Steckloff, who was told by the FBI she was one of the targets. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
New York City this morning as we are following developments out of Michigan. The man who is accused of threatening to kill Jewish state officials in Michigan is making his first court appearance today. We broke the news on the program yesterday as federal authorities say that Jack Carpenter first made the threats online, had plans to go to Michigan to actually carry out those ideas, those threats. The FBI says that he wrote, wrote posts supporting an anti-government extremist movement that is classified as domestic terrorism. CNN's Omar Jimenez has the report. The threats were allegedly posted on the internet from out of state by suspect Jack Eugene Carpenter III. I'm heading back to Michigan now, threatening to carry out the punishment of death to anyone that is Jewish in the Michigan government if they don't leave or confess and now. Later adding, any attempt to subdue me will be met with deadly force and self-defense. Court documents show his mother told investigators he had three handguns, a 12-gauge shotgun, and two rifles. A law enforcement source tells CNN among those specifically targeted, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. She says the FBI has confirmed that was a target of the heavily armed defendant in this matter. She's the second high-ranking Michigan official to be targeted in recent years, after a plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer was foiled in 2020. This time, it was allegedly about more than just one official. This is right in the wheelhouse of what the FBI and, and Director Ray have told us they think is the most dangerous, the most concerning threat that they face on the counterterrorist side. The suspect allegedly posted a declaration of sovereignty, claiming a country he called New Israel, according to the FBI, encompassing a nine-mile radius around his home. The FBI says he believed because of this, no one in the government or law enforcement had authority over him. Tweeting, any crime that's been claimed I committed, I am, one, immune from prosecution anyway, two, all the evidence is fake. This isn't the first time law enforcement has seen a claim like this. It seems to fit the profile of a lone wolf. Javed Ali is a former senior counterterrorism official for the U.S. government. Whether this threat gets manifested by single individuals posting online, like in this particular case, or... Um, larger groups coming together like they did here in Michigan with the plot to kidnap uh, Governor Whitmer to the extreme end with the insurrection of January 6th. So we've seen all these different models of what this threat can look like. And this isn't going away anytime soon. Now, the suspect was an employee at the University of Michigan for 10 years until December 2021. He claims he was fired for refusing to take experimental medication. Now, the university wouldn't comment on that, but did require a COVID-19 booster shot for employees around that time. He's charged with violating interstate communications laws when it comes to threats. He's due in court later today. He's represented by a federal public defender, but we haven't heard anything from them yet. Yeah, just terrifying to see this intersection of threats against elected officials and the rise in anti-Semitism that we've been seeing. Omar Jimenez, thank you for that report. Attorney General uh, Dana Nessel, Attorney General of Michigan, wasn't the only official in that state to be targeted in this plot. There were others, including first-term state representative Samantha Steckloff, who says she found out about the threat on her life when the FBI called her. She joins us now. Good morning. I'm so sorry that this is the reason you're with us, but I appreciate you sharing your experience with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's important to get this kind of message out, so I appreciate you having me on your show this morning. What is so sad to me on top of this is that you're not surprised. When I was first called, it was a week and a half ago. Uh, the FBI called, said they were on their way to arrest this gentleman. 
put the phone down and didn't really think too much of it. And <laughs> I so did not think so much of it that I didn't really tell anybody about it until the story broke yesterday. And let's just say that is not the way I wanted my mother to find mm. out about what happened. You know, you have been very public about your battle with an overcoming breast cancer. And you said, I did not survive breast cancer to be killed for being Jewish. Do you believe right now, as this threat came to you, that anti-Semitism and the threat of attack on public officials like you is now a greater threat to your life than breast cancer? Oh, absolutely. We've seen the rise in anti-Semitism pretty much since uh, the Charlottesville. Uh, yeah. When President Trump came in 2016, we saw this rise and wave of this right Christian national group. And it really, really, really hit the fire when Kanye West uh, said he was going to go DEFCON 3 on all of the Jews back in October, November. You know, you've talked about that, that tweet that then Twitter removed for violating its policies. But what I think is interesting, Representative, is you've also talked about some of the media being somewhat complicit in this or certainly not doing enough to stomp it out. Can you talk about that? I do want to talk about this. And the reason I talk about it is because this is how it starts. You know, when I speak to my grandmother and I speak to Holocaust survivors, we have a very, very vibrant Holocaust um, survivor network here in Metro Detroit. We were the first Holocaust memorial center in the country, established in the 1980s. And it was created by Holocaust survivors. And I say that because we have this great cultural fabric here in Southeast Michigan. And while this is the first time in my lifetime I have seen this kind of stuff happen. It's not the first time we've seen it happen, especially when we go back to the 1930s and why so many of our seniors are scared. Mm -hmm. Back in October, November, when Kanye West put that tweet out, uh, tweet out, the Detroit News editorial board put out an entire article calling Kanye a victim. And still to this day, they refuse they absolutely refuse to retract it. Um, I still go back and forth with the edit editor of the Detroit News. And I bring that up not to say so much about we need to be um, so much of going after our media. That's not it at all. But what it does mean is we need to be very conscious about what we say, the tropes we use. We so often hear that the Jews are in charge of the media, that we are in charge of everything. And we need to stop that argument. And when you have someone who can tweet out, to more people, to double the amount of people than there are Jews in this entire world. There are less than 15 million of us. Majority of people have never met another Jewish person. Mm. So their information comes from the media. You know, I read that. I remember that Detroit News op-ed. I know they altered it a bit. They said Kanye was a victim of cancel culture. It still exists. It's been altered a bit. But just fi final question uh, to the point Caitlin made that's such an important point in an Omar's piece. You as, a, as an elected state representative who's Jewish, faced this dual-pronged threat. Both arise in attacks on and threats to elected officials and anti-Semitism that is at a record high right now, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Does it ever make you rethink what you do now? It does. Uh, it absolutely does. And the reason I keep fighting is because I know that it is my duty and my job to make sure that I leave this world a better place than I entered it, to kun alam. Mm. And it's so important that I continue to wake up each day and fight for my community. While I said breast cancer was the most difficult thing I've ever had to go through, it really has been these last few months. Putting myself out there openly as a Jewish representative when I've already received death threats on a daily basis. 
was one of the scariest things I've ever done. And I know even today by showing my face, speaking out against, against this horrible tragedy that could have been, I, I, I'm prone to some today. Wow. You're brave. And we thank you for your, your service to the state of Michigan, to this country. And thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so, so much for having me. Of course. Don. Well, there are two dueling Republican gatherings happening this week. So where are the 2024 candidates and hopefuls headed? Maryland or Florida? And how could that shape the race? So new signs of splintering inside the Republican Party this morning. Conservatives are split between dueling events in Maryland and Florida. And some big names on the right are skipping what was once a must-attend event, the Conservative Political Action Conference known as CPAC. CNN's Kristen Holmes live for us, CNN this morning, at National Harbor in Maryland with the latest on this. Good morning to you. The people who weren't there are as notable as the people who were there, Kristen. Yeah, that's right, Don. I mean, this event has really become a who's who of MAGA world. We have seen these popular social media stars. Don Jr. is here, Steve Bannon, as well as that MAGA wing of Congress. We saw representatives Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, of course, Trump himself is speaking on Saturday, but notably missing almost all of the major 2024 Republican hopefuls, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which had several people, several attendees here, pretty disappointed. Dueling cattle calls for 2024 Republican hopefuls. Outside Washington. Welcome to CPAC, everyone. The Conservative Political Action Conference. For years, a launching pad for aspiring presidential candidates. Now, largely the Trump show. No one did more to secure this border than President Trump. If you don't like him, then you don't like me. With the former president headlining the three-day event, filled with conservative activists and far-right firebrands. Meanwhile, in Florida, other major potential candidates are gathering for a private donor event hosted by the Club for Growth, an anti-tax group at odds with Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott skipping CPAC altogether. Beyond Trump, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo are the only major 2024 hopefuls set to address the CPAC crowd, raising questions about its relevance. There's a lot of chatter in the media about who's here and not here. The two events highlighting the deep party divide. Some politicians who say they're on our side are also destroying our country. With former President Donald Trump at the center. But while many attendees say they are still behind Trump. I'm not undecided. I am a Trump supporter because he's a warrior. He's the only one uh, that can pull this through. Others weren't so ready to commit. Even if they're healthy when they get elected, Four years is a long time at that age, um, so that's a big concern of mine with Trump. As the GOP braces for a primary clash, some here said they were hoping to hear from more of the party's hopefuls. I think we're all a little disappointed about Ron DeSantis. Did you or did you want to hear him speak? I did. I've seen him speak, and, and I'm moving to Florida. I don't think it's all decided yet, is it? But I would recommend one thing. Take the Ronald Reagan approach. Don't talk bad about Republicans. 
don't talk bad about Republicans. Now, that sounded like a little bit of wishful thinking. It's something we heard from a lot of attendees. But if this primary looks anything like what we saw in 2016, it is going to be very ugly. And of course, as we know, former President Trump has spent a majority of the last month just attacking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis all over his social media. So again, it seems a little bit like wishful thinking at this point. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. Thank you, Kristen Holmes. Appreciate it. Marilyn. Also this morning, the White House is now calling for a, quote, thorough and transparent investigation into the reported poisoning of schoolgirls in Iran. The Iranian journalist and activist Masi Halinajad is going to has been critical of the Iranian government. She's been a target of them as well. She's going to join us next with her thoughts. There is fear, concern, and major questions this morning all across Iran after nationwide reports of schoolgirls being poisoned. The first reported poisonings happened back in November, according to Iranian state media. Reports say that nearly 900 students from across the country have been poisoned so far. The White House is now weighing in with John Kirby saying that investigations should be done by the Iranian government to be thorough and transparent. Let's see what the results are here first before we make some kind of snap judgment. We don't really know what's going on with respect to these hundreds of, uh, of schoolgirls. Um, and uh, we, I think where the president is, we need to know. The world needs to know. Certainly the families of those little girls need to know. Joining us now is Iranian journalist and activist Masi Alinejad. She has been named as one of Time Magazine's Women of the Year for her work on behalf of women's rights in Iran. She was also the target of a murder-for-hire plot that was linked to the Iranian government, according to the U.S. Justice Department. He says we need to wait to know. You feel like we already know what's happening. Exactly. I was actually uh, listening to John Kirby say, asking the Iranian government to do an investigation. Wow. You had a physical reaction when you... Yeah, because it's like asking criminals to do investigate on their own crimes. We know what's happened. If really the U.S. government want to know what happened, they have to talk to, to, to people like me and to the parents of the students who believe that the Islamic Republic is behind this chemical attack because it's a revenge against those brave girls who removed their hijab and protested against the Islamic Republic. That's clear for us. What more do you, because for a long time you've called on the West, the United States, the Biden administration, the West to do more. No, you're right. For what a long more? Time. What more can they do now? And look, first, look first of all, first of all, I want the U.S. government to stop believing in Iranian government and saying that you have to do an investigation. We need an open investigation from outside organization. This is what the U.S. government can do. Second of all, we need strong condemnation. We need President Biden. Think about it. It's, it's like happening to your own daughters, to your own sons, to your own, to your own children in the United States of America. But when the U Iranian government see no strong action, when they see that the, still the U.S. government were trying to get a deal, when the, the, the foreign minister of the Islamic Republic were welcomed by the European Parliament, by the uh, high um, representative of EU. So there is no reason for them to stop killing more innocent teenagers. There, there is no reason for the Iranian government when they don't see any punishment by the Western government. So they keep killing people. They keep poisoning girls to create fear among students. You obviously are very outspoken. You say that you use your social media um, as your main weapon against these injustices. But one of your campaigns led to multiple women being in prison, for which you say that you felt guilty about it first. And then what happened? 
I always feel guilty. Can, can you believe that when I was in the makeup room, the woman were trying to make my hair beautiful, mm. and I was like, wow, you are here. You're being paid to make my hair beautiful. In my country, people are there to hide your hair. People are there to kill you, to torture women, to poison women, to make them to hide their hair, to cover their hair. Think about it. Every morning when you, you, you come to the studio, you, you think about your appearance. Every morning when we want to go out, we have to let the men, Iranian men, Iranian clerics, to think about, make decision over our own body. This is a, this is a gender apartheid regime that we are talking. So sometimes I feel guilty when I, when I free here, when I enjoy myself. When, when I was heard that I'm woman of the year, I was like, I'm, I'm not sure whether I can be happy or not. While it has been six months that the Iranian regime oppressed my sisters, my daughters in Iran. You said the Iranian government should not be investigating itself, essentially. Who should do, who do you think should do this investigation into the schoolgirls? I want to say that the UN, but at the same time, you know, I don't have any hope, but I believe that the, US, the UN accountability mechanism must be on board. The doctors without borders, we need them to be on board. These are the organizations that we believe that they can do something. Otherwise, look, we're talking about the regime killed Mahsa Amini, uh, the 22-year-old woman, for showing a little bit of her hair. And then they were the one saying that we're going to do an investigation. What they did, they killed more than 500 innocent girls in the uprising. And yesterday I was watching Kristen Amanpour on CNN interviewing uh, the foreign minister of the Islamic Amazing Republic. Amazing interview. He was denying. Yeah. I mean, thank to Kristen Amanpour, look into his eyes and challenging him. But he was denying the killing. He was denying the, uh, the, the, the torturing. He was denying the rape. So now, John Kirby, you're asking the same government to do an investigation? Who? Oh. Why we're so grateful for, for you being here. Masi, thank you. Thank you. Please don't abandon Iranian woman. More bad news is going to come up, but <clears throat> I promise you, we're going to have good news. You know we're not. Thank you, and thank I you love you Thank you for communicating with us about this. I love CNN this year. <laughs> you did a great job for Iran. We do too. Thank you. Thank we you love so you. Thank you. We love having you here. Thank you. Well, next for us, it is a critical bridge used to move supplies and people, and overnight, Russian forces blew it up. Our Alex Marquardt is on the ground in eastern Ukraine with the latest on the Russian offensive there. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, the Lakers are going to have to find a way to stay in the playoff race without LeBron James. The league's all-time scoring leader is expected to miss most of March with an injured tendon in his right foot. Yesterday, the Lakers announced LeBron will be reevaluated in about three weeks after hurting his foot on Sunday against the Mavs. The Lakers will be without LeBron as they try to make the push to the playoffs. What do you think? Can they bummer. do it without him? You know I don't know, so... Can they do it without him? But he's he's so good. I, I was so impressed when we saw that game in person. You think no? It's tough without. I mean, it's there. Watching how he coordinates with everyone yeah. and just, like, owns the court. I yeah. mean, it is. Yeah. I know I'm the first yeah. person on planet Earth to say LeBron James is really good. LeBron James <laughs> is really good. We'll see. Wishing him a speedy recovery. All right. See you in this morning. Continues right now.
We may have the worst criminal justice system in the world, but it's better than every other kind that there is. And our criminal justice system worked tonight. It gave a voice to Maggie and Paul Murdoch. Their voice was heard tonight and justice was brought for them. We can't bring them back, but we can bring them justice. The case that the whole country is paying attention to, that was the South Carolina Attorney General who we, we're gonna talk to later on this hour. Good morning, everyone. This happened fast. Very fast. Three Very hours. Quickly. Very fast. Like No one, everyone's like, ah, you're gonna have to talk about the deliberations tomorrow morning. And I looked at my phone and I said, nope, I'm not. I'm gonna be talking about the verdict because there is yep. one. Three hours, three hours. The verdict from the Alex Murdoch a trial found guilty of murdering his own wife and son. He's about to learn his fate just hours from now at his sentencing. We're going to speak to the attorney representing the family of Murdoch's dead housekeeper. They have been seeking justice for years after she died in a serious fall in Murdoch home. Also, tornadoes just ripping across the south as a powerful coast-to-coast -coast winter storm brings heavy snow to the Midwest and to the Northeast. People in California still trapped in their homes running out of food after the same storm system dumped seven feet of snow there. Also this morning on the international front, the situation is critical for Ukrainian forces who are in the besieged city of Bakhmud. A vital supply bridge, the only really main bridge into the city, has been blown up. Russian mercenaries say that the Ukrainian defenders have been surrounded. We're going to take you live on the ground to eastern Ukraine. But here's where we begin, with a verdict in the double murder trial that has gripped the nation's attention. Guilty, verdict, verdict, guilty, verdict, guilty, verdict, guilty. Guilty, all the way around. Alex Murdoch found guilty of murdering his own wife and son. It took the jury less than three hours to reach a verdict. The sentencing is set to begin soon, 9.30. As he was placed in handcuffs, it appeared that Murdoch mouthed the words, I love you, to his only surviving son, Buster. Prosecutors say Murdoch murdered his own wife and son, as a distraction from his financial crimes and problems as they spiraled out of control. The prosecution is seeking life in prison without parole. The min minimum is 30 years. Murdoch's defense attorneys say they will appeal. So let's discuss now. Eric Bland is joining us. He's a criminal defense attorney, the host of Cup of Justice podcast, and the attorney for the family of Gloria Satterfield. She was the Murdoch's longtime housekeeper who died in 2018 on that property on his property. Now, the state claims that Murdoch stole more than $4 million in insurance money that was supposed to go to her family. Thank you for joining us this morning, sir. We appreciate it. Good morning, Don. Give me your reaction to this quick uh, jury verdict. They came back really quickly. What's your reaction? Well, it, this case had all the earmarkings of, of stent, the stench of privilege and power. Um, the jury didn't just return a guilty verdict. They returned an incredibly guilty verdict. Um, Alex put himself square one in front of this jury when he decided to testify, which is a very rare thing for somebody to do in his position, especially in a circumstantial evidence case. Uh, but once he did, it became a referendum on him. He basically said, look, I'm a drug addict, I'm a thief, and I'm a liar. And everybody else in this trial is lying. The, you know, Blanca, his sister-in-law, Mark Tinsley, Sled, um, the housekeeper for his mother, Shelly Smith. And what he said is that you got to believe me today. When the devil's at the door, I'm going to tell you the truth. And fortunately, the jury didn't uh, believe him. They came back with a verdict within three hours, which is extraordinarily fast. And, you know, to be 
um, a lawyer in South Carolina, you have to understand the soil that you practice on. And we do. And these juries understand guns. They understand uh, the realities of guns and how to keep them safe. And these, this family kept them loaded, tons of guns in the house and tons of guns in cars and in um, golf carts. And they just didn't believe him that you couldn't hear the sound of gunfire at his house. It's that simple, plus the lie of the kennel. You know, let's remember that you represented Gloria's family and she she died on this property. And the allegations from the state are that, you know, that Murdoch stole millions of dollars. It was supposed to go to her family. We heard the South Carolina attorney general say last night in the press conference, this is at least justice. Can't bring him back, but it's justice. Does it feel like justice to the Satterfield family as well? Oh, sure. I mean, look what they have accomplished. We We've recovered over seven and a half million dollars for them. We have a confession of judgment against Alex for four million three hundred thousand dollars. We got him disbarred as a result of it. We've got him criminally charged in the Satterfield case. And uh, last week he admitted to that on the stand. So his not guilty verdict now is going to be very problematic when they schedule this trial on the Satterfields. And at the end of the day, we have the Glorious Gift Foundation that has been established to provide gifts for underprivileged families in Hampton County at Christmas. So Gloria did not die in vain. Remember, once we came forward, hers was the first case to unravel all of these financial crimes and it, get, and it empowered other victims to come forward as well. Yeah, it was amazing to see him, you know, admit on the stand that, yes, he did steal from his clients. He did steal from people like her family and from his own law firm. You're talking about moving quickly with the verdict. We are also going to see the sentencing hearing this morning. What are you expecting to happen there? Well, I think what you're going to see is the state is going to say that um, he shouldn't uh, get 30 years or anything other than life and life without parole. This is an extremely violent crime with aggravating circumstances, multiple guns, and it's familiacide. It's killing your wife and your son. And then lying about it to your only living son. Look, the the biggest victim in all of this is Buster. Mm. Buster, the young son who's 26 years old, doesn't have a mother or brother, and now is losing his father. And this family dynasty, this name, is tarnished forever, Caitlin. Yeah, that's a really good point to keep him in mind. He He was in the courtroom during this trial. Eric Bland. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you appearing here on CNN this morning. Be well. Sure. Have me back. Of course. Have a good day, guys. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So in our next hour, we're going to talk to Alan Wilson. He's a South Carolina's attorney general about this verdict. Well, this morning, tornadoes tearing through North Texas, knocking out power to thousands of customers and forcing the cancellations of hundreds of flights in Dallas. Wind gusts reaching up to 70 miles an hour, strong enough to topple tractor trailers and destroy some homes and businesses. Ed Lavendera is live in Little Elm, Texas with more Ed. What happened? What's behind you? What happened? Well, this was the facade of La Seca meat market that was blown over uh, in the storm, crushing about a half dozen cars underneath there. Uh, This all happening last night as this line of severe storms 
blew through uh, Texas and into southern Oklahoma. In fact, at one point, this storm system stretched about 500 miles long from San Antonio all the way into southeast Oklahoma with winds uh, close to 70 miles per hour at times. So it was rather intense and, as you mentioned, causing flight delays and flight cancellations at a number of airports. And we're waking up this morning to about 100,000 customers or so without power. Many of those customers include school campuses. So we're seeing reports of uh, a number of school districts here in the North Texas area that are canceling classes today because campuses are without power. But the good news is, is that there isn't widespread uh, damage. In fact, this is probably the, the worst we have seen. There were uh, no reports of major injuries or deaths uh, through this, but it is also the second line of severe storms that we've seen happen this week. We were in Oklahoma earlier this week where there were, the wind gusts were intense in some places well over 100 miles per hour. So this is a vivid reminder uh, that we are off to an early start in the spring storm season. Um, and it is going to be a long few months, I suspect. Poppy? Well, I'd love it, Daryl. Thank you for your team getting up overnight to cover it. <laughs> also this morning, California has activated its National Guard to help San Bernardino County dig out from all that snow. The snow has left people stranded without the essentials like baby food and formula. Some areas saw over seven and a half feet of snow. Look at this right here. The weight of it caused the roof of this town's only grocery store, the only one, to collapse in on itself. And like Arrowhead, firefighters are trying to put out this blaze, but it was all made difficult because of just how much snow there is still on the ground. CNN's Camilla Bernal is joining us live from San Bernardino, California. You know, you can see how frustrated these residents are that they're kind of reaching this point where the snow has stopped, but they can't get out of it. They can't get basics. Is there any sign of when they're going to actually be able uh, to get out of their homes? Well, Caitlin, good morning. Unfortunately, it is going to be a while. Officials saying it could take up to 10 days to allow people in and out of the mountain. They are responding to emergency calls. They're doing everything they can to evacuate people that need to be evacuated. But the bottom line is that it is going to take time. And a lot of the people that I talked to told me that they're scared, that they're frustrated, and they want to see more being done here. At first, I was really frustrated, but now it's to the point where we're somewhat scared. Derek Hayes trapped in the mountains of Southern California after an epic winter storm. There's nowhere to put the snow. There's no way to walk around. It's, you know, it's up to my neck in a lot of places. Uh, you take a step, you sink all the way down. And you have to crawl yourself back out of the snow to try to uh, get on top of it, to even move around. Derek, just one of many who are stranded. It's pretty unfathomable. The only thing they can do is wait for help. It's just crazy. There's no way to get out anywhere. Their concerns, food, heat, medical emergencies or medicine and food for their pets, just to name a few. These San Bernardino Mountains do get plenty of snow in the winter, but the past few weeks have been unprecedented, with the National Weather Service issuing its first ever blizzard warning. Our main concern right now is to try to get the infrastructure up the mountain um, to be able to clear some of these roadways so that we can essentially get, you know, the, the, the people that live up there back to their houses and the people that are stuck up there back down. Emergency crews so far carrying out roughly 100 rescues. It's a for size. Governor Gavin Newsom also declaring a state of emergency for San Bernardino County and 12 others 
activating the National Guard. Residents say lives are in danger. We're actually going to be getting a neighbor out of his house. He's a cancer patient who is elderly and he has a doctor's appointment that he's going to try and get to. Some have been shoveling non-stop. Dig out the truck for the fourth time. But not all are able to do so. It's one of the roughest, roughest experiences. And, and But you, you sort of go into survival mode and you just keep pushing through. Um, you know, I, I feel incredibly bad for anyone that hasn't got that physical presence. And we are expecting members of the National Guard to arrive today, so we're likely going to see some progress. I also want to point out that these storms have improved drought conditions in California. The snowpack is the largest it's been in decades. Caitlin? Yeah, thinking of all those people who are stuck right now. Camilla, thank you so much. The fighting has been nonstop in Bakhmut as Russian forces inch closer to taking the city. Alex Marquardt has been covering this for us live in Ukraine. That's right, Don. I'm Alex Marquardt, live in eastern Ukraine. Coming up on CNN this morning, we'll have the latest on a critical bridge that was destroyed in the battle for Bakhmut. Stay with us. More CNN this morning to come after the break. The fighting in eastern Ukraine is intensifying. Soldiers say Russia's assault on Bakhmut has been constant as they inch closer to taking that city overnight. A critical bridge, the last remaining supply route in and out of the city, was blown up by Russian forces. A mandatory evacuation order has been put in place. About 5,000 people, including children, are still there in Bakhmut. That our Alex Market is in eastern Ukraine with a lot more. This was the question all week, Alex, as you've been reporting on the ground. What was going to happen to this bridge? Now that it's been blown up, what does it mean for the people? Well, Poppy, this means things are, are particularly grim for Ukrainian forces in and around Bakhmut and the civilians who are still inside. You mentioned those thousands of civilians who are still in Bakhmut. We were actually going on an evacuation mission uh, with a team earlier today. That, that operation was called off because this bridge was blown up. This bridge was on a main supply route, really the only paved road that Ukrainian forces were able to use in and out of Bakhmut. We showed you that road on the edge of the town of Chazivyar yesterday. You saw all those military vehicles uh, going to and from the front. Now, we understand from a Ukrainian soldier in Bakhmut that that bridge was taken out by a, a large missile, which means, Poppy, that Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut are now surrounded on three sides. So if they want to resupply, if they want to pull out, if they want to evacuate people, they have to do so on dirt roads or across fields, which is very difficult and leaves them very vulnerable. For now, there is no order to evacuate. Uh, Ukrainian forces, we're told, are, are still standing their ground, but it is getting very, very difficult for those Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut. And Poppy. on that point of evacuation, what is the significance, Alex, of the founder of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, calling on President Zelensky to order a withdrawal from Bakhmut? Yeah, and, and Prigozhin's forces have been the ones who have been leading the fight uh, in Bakhmut against the Ukrainian forces. Prigozhin, in a new video this morning, telling President Zelensky to, to pull his forces out because his forces are surrounded. He says that that will be completed in, in a day or two and so that uh, so he should pull those troops out 
uh, now to, to save their lives. We were speaking with Ukrainian forces yesterday in that neighboring town of Chazivyar, just about three miles or five kilometers away from Bakhmut. And they were saying that they needed to keep fighting for the city of Bakhmut because if it is taken by the Russians, it will be a major victory. They will be able to press forward deeper into eastern Ukraine mm -hmm. and that Chazivyar, that town and many others like it, would be the next target for Russian forces. Right, Bobby. where we just saw you in Chazivyar this week. Alex, thank you very, very much. Caitlin. And what's happening there on the ground with Alex and in Ukraine overall is sure to be on the agenda today as President Biden is now preparing to welcome a key NATO ally to the White House. He is going to have a face-to-face -face with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. That's coming amid new concerns about Ukraine's struggle to fight off the Russian offensive and the willingness of allies to send weapons. Today, the White House is set to announce another round of military aid to Ukraine. We should note, though, CNN's Kylie Atwood is covering this live at the State Department this morning. Kylie, the last time the German chancellor visited the White House, Russia had not yet invaded Ukraine. And so this this it's kind of remarkable just how much their relationship has changed and his relationship now in this one year period. Completely, Caitlin. I think this moment does beg uh, a moment of reflection just to look at what has happened over the last year, how NATO has really been uh, lockstep. A year ago, as you said, when German Chancellor Schultz was in Washington, it was before the Russian invasion, I don't think anyone would have imagined that Germany would have been the one that was sending stinger parts or tanks to Ukraine because Germany has historically taken sort of a pacifist approach to foreign policy because of its involvement in World War II. But Germany has really come along. And so it is worth mentioning that. I do think now that they're going to be focused on looking forward, of course. We heard from the White House yesterday from John Kirby talking about uh, the fact that they'll be looking at what Ukraine needs next, coordination in terms of what allies can give Ukraine. And then there are two things that I'll be watching for. And I think the first is China, this idea of them potentially providing lethal assistance to Ukraine. Senior administration officials said that wouldn't be a central focus of this conversation. But we did hear earlier this week from Schultz warning China against going forward with this lethal aid. So we could see some conversations about coordination if there's a response to that. And then also how this war comes to an end. Schultz talked about providing security guarantees and discussing that with allies this week. So do they get into what some of those security guarantees for Ukraine could look like as they try and bring about a negotiated end, but look towards fighting before that. Yeah, that's kind of looming over all of this. But we do know the U.S. is going to announce another aid package. Do we know what's going to be in there? Is there anything new that we haven't seen so far? No, we don't expect there to be anything new. Mostly what this will be, according to the White House, is additional ammunition for the systems that the Ukrainians already have. Um, that is key because we know that as this battle heats up on the Eastern Front, the Ukrainians do need that ammunition, so it's significant. But John Kirby said that they sh we shouldn't expect there to be any new developments in terms of accelerating assistance to Ukraine. Of course, that is a major question that reporters have been asking about, but there will be more assistance today. All right, Kylie, I would at the State Department. Thank you. Well, it's official. Congress is investigating George Santos, a House Ethics Committee announcing it will be looking into the first term congressman who has extensively lied about his past. Will it amount to anything? Live on Capitol Hill. Also, President Biden bound to the GOP and avoiding a veto fight over a Washington, D.C. law that many Republicans say is too soft on crime. Next, we will be joined by Democratic Senator Tom Carper, how he feels about this decision by the president. This morning, Embattled Congressman George Santos, officially under investigation by the House Ethics Committee, 
Santos is facing intense scrutiny and calls to resign after admitting to extensively lying about his resume and biography. Seen as Lauren Fox, live on Capitol Hill with more this morning. Good morning, Lauren. There have been so many lies. So what exactly is the Ethics Committee going to look at? Yeah, and Don, this is the committee that Republican leaders have been pointing to as the reason they didn't want to take action against George Santos. They've repeatedly said House ethics is going to look into it. Now they are, Don. And specifically, they're looking at a few areas, whether or not he may have broken federal election laws in the course of his campaign. They're also looking at whether or not he properly filed documents to the House of Representatives. That could include things like financial disclosure forms. And they are looking at allegations into whether or not he engaged in sexual misconduct related toward an individual that was seeking employment in his office. Now, the House Ethics Committee investigation could go on for weeks or months, Don, but there are a few powerful things that they could do or at least recommend the House of Representatives does. One of them is potentially expelling George Santos from Congress. They also could issue a censure, which would force him to stand in the well of the House and be admonished by his colleagues, or they could issue some kind of reprimand, which is really no more than a slap on the wrist on. But that gives you a sense of what the House Ethics Committee could actually do to George Santos if he were expelled from Congress, which has only happened five times. In the House, they would need two thirds of Republicans and Democrats in that body to vote for it, Don. He has denied the uh, harassment allegations, by the way. We should mention that. The committee is also investigating uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What's new in that investigation? Yeah, this was an official letter that the House Ethics Committee issued yesterday saying they're just continuing an investigation into whether or not the Congresswoman may have improperly accepted gifts. This was related to her attending the 2021 Met Gala. There are... Uh, responses from her office's counsel saying that they don't believe the congresswoman did anything wrong. But again, this is just House Ethics issuing that letter saying that they are continuing to look into this matter, Don. Lauren Fox, Capitol Hill this morning. Thank you, Lauren. Also this morning in Washington, President Biden now says he will not stand in the way of a Republican-led effort to overturn a new criminal code in Washington, D.C., bowing to Republicans and steering clear of a potential veto fight. Republicans have been hammering the district's council's changes as soft on crime. They repealed the measure in the House and sent it over to the Senate, where momentum started to build as some Democrats were putting their support behind it. I don't support what the district did. It's, and it's really not a question of supporting what Republicans do. I just don't support what the district did. Uh, if anything, we should be increasing penalties for certain offenses. What we're talking about here is a new law that reduces maximum sentences for certain violent crimes like carjacking while increasing others. The White House is arguing that Biden's concern about softening some of those sentences has outweighed his broad support for the district to govern itself. The president doesn't support changes like lowering penalties for carjacking. So this piece is different. But again, it doesn't change the administration strongly supporting H.R. 51, uh, which would have made uh, D.C. the 51st state. Uh, that is something that he still very much uh, supports. Statements like that, though, have not reassured city officials, including the attorney general, who said, quote, any effort to overturn the District of Columbia's democratically enacted laws degrades the right of its nearly 700,000 residents and elected officials to self-govern. Joining us now for more on this is Democratic Senator Tom Carper of Delaware, who reintroduced, reintroduced a bill recently that would grant 
Washington, D.C. statehood. Good morning, Senator, and thank you for being here. Do you agree with the president on this? Yeah, the, uh, the, what, what needs to happen here is the uh, Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, Council uh, and the mayor need to work together. Their criminal code hasn't been updated for something like 100 years. Uh, they uh, didn't get it entirely right to when they made, uh, went through uh, their exercises over the last year or so. Uh, they need to fix it, and including the carjacking that's been mentioned in, in the course of this. They can do that. And once they do that, uh, we'll get uh, their, the new criminal code will be in place. It needs to be put in place. The provisions in it that are 100 years old need to be updated. But uh, they didn't have carjacking 100 years ago. So this is a new, a new wrinkle compared to what, what we started with. But this yeah. can be fixed, and it shouldn't be that hard. And the carjackings. And in, are in the meantime, the, the question, at least for me, is one who, who believes that it's that, uh, that the Washington D.C. Here's a here's a place they on a per capita basis they pay more federal taxes than any other state. They've got thousands, tens of thousands of people who serve on active duty in the military. They don't have a vote in the House or the Senate, and they ought to have that. That need, that needs to be fixed as well. But given I, that, I, I default Senator, to the golden rule: treat other people the way they want to be treated, and the, the people in Washington D.C. ought to be treated well, just Senator, like the people in East Palestine that we're going to talk about here in a minute should be treated the way we would want to treat our neighbors. Yeah, we're absolutely going to talk about that in a moment. But given what you're saying that D.C. should be able to make its own decisions, why should Congress be getting involved here? Because that's what is happening. The, the people of, uh, of uh, Washington, D.C. deserve a, an updated criminal code. They also deserve a criminal code that says that carjacking should be a serious matter and it should be punished. And the, the mayor and the city council have the opportunity to fix it now, and they ought to fix it. And when they do, it'll be enacted. It'll, that'll be, uh, it'll be a yesterday's story. That's what needs to be happening. You've argued that D.C. has the right, though, to govern itself. So does this move by the president not undermine that? No, I, I don't think I don't think so at all. In fact, if anything, it probably goes the other direction. The, uh, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned golden rule: treat other people the way we want to be treated. The people of Washington D.C. deserve a vote in the Congress, in the House, and the Senate. They've got more people in several states. They pay more taxes in a bunch of states on a per capita basis, and and, and yet they don't have any representation. I'm a retired Navy captain, Vietnam veteran. Yeah, I, I used to be a voting officer when I was my squadron was deployed to Southeast Asia. We had people in my squadron who were. Uh, that, who were um, from the, the District of Columbia, they didn't get to vote uh, when we're right in the middle of the war. That's wrong. We ought to fix this. And we can, we can fix this, too, as, 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 at the same time. And, and I know you've, you've said that's really important to you. That's why you reintroduced that bill. But it's a little confusing coming from the White House because they did put out a statement of their policy uh, in February 6th, and it said Congress should respect the District of Columbia's autonomy to govern its own local affairs. And now the president is saying he will sign this Republican-led measure to overturn the crime bill that they've revised, the crime sentencing that they've revised? I think we need to be practical here. The, their criminal code hasn't been updated for 100 years. They need to update it. And uh, they, they've made a mistake with respect to carjacking. They shouldn't be relaxing the, the penalties for carjacking. If anything, maybe in, increase them. Carjacking is a, a serious problem in, across our country. This can be fixed. Let's get it done. The mayor, the mayor knows this. I think the council knows this. Let's get it done. And after that, after we've resolved this, let's turn, turn, turn the page, take the next step and say, now, how do we go about making sure that the people of Washington, D.C., all 800,000 of them, have a, a voice and a vote in the House and in the Senate, which I believe they deserve? So safe to say that you will be voting uh, for this. I'm, gonna, I'm lined up with the president on this. Okay. Let's get this done. The mayor knows what to do. 
I think the council knows what to do. Let's do it. All right. Thank you, Senator, for that. And I know you are also going to be chair. You're chair, the chair of this committee where we are going to see the CEO of Norfolk Southern coming and testifying next week. Alan Shaw, he is someone that a lot of people have want to have heard from. He did not go to a town hall in East Palestine last night. What questions do you have for the CEO? I, th- I think for us, this is Senator uh, uh, Capito of West Virginia. She and I are the lead um, uh, members of the Environment and Public Works Committee. We have jurisdiction over uh, EPA. I think the questions for, uh, for us in the hearing we'll have next Thursday. We've invited in a bipartisan group of senators who've offered legislation led by Jared Brown and, 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 and others. But what I want to know, and I think we want to know, how did this happen? Uh, what, uh, what has been done to, uh, to address it? How, how do we make sure that this doesn't uh, happen uh, again? Uh, how would we want to be treated if we lived in uh, East as Palestine? I went to, I, during the Vietnam War, I was a Navy rights midshipman to Ohio State. I had a lot of friends all over Ohio, including East Ohio, in this, uh, this area. I, I want to make sure that, that they get treated the way that we would want to be treated if we were in their, in their shoes. I think that's, uh, that's what guides, guides us. We have legislation that's been introduced. We're going to have a hearing on Thursday. We'll have a chance to, uh, to hear what that legislation would do. I think at the end of the day, Norfolk Southern has to be held accountable. The, the key is that, that we want to make sure that, that not only do we take care of the people who, whose neighbors, who, whose t- community has, has been turned on its head, we want to make sure that, that, that there's longer-term health uh, concerns, that those are addressed. EPA, I will say this, EPA doesn't always get good credit for it, but literally within hours, they had a response team on the site, on the site at the, crisis, at the crisis, uh, crash site. The um, head of EPA, Michael Regan, has been there, I think, two, three, mm-hmm. four times already. And the EPA's the, part of their responsibility is to hold a Norfolk Southern accountable, and we're going to do that. And, Senator, you mentioned that legislation that has been introduced by a bipartisan group. But do you think the railroad companies are going to fight that legislation? I, it doesn't matter so much what I think. We, we, need, we need to go. I call this regular order. We have a problem here, a huge problem. It needs to be addressed. There's going to have to be a legislative fix. We have uh, several of my colleagues, and glad by Sherrod Brown, have, have said this is what we think should be done. We'll have a chance to discuss that in our hearing. And as we go forward in the days, uh, days to come, we'll decide whether or not that's the right approach or if it needs to be t- tweaked. Uh, and uh, regular order here. Have hearings, decide, discuss, debate it in committee and on the floor, and, and then do the right thing. Uh, and treat people the way we'd want to be treated. Is Most this- of all, make sure that this doesn't happen again. Do the best we can to ensure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Uh, I'm in Delaware right now. Delaware is where the Constitution was first ratified, gosh, almost 250 years ago. And it starts off with a preamble that says, uh, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, more perfect union. It doesn't say a form of perfect union, a more perfect union. The idea was we knew we weren't perfect then and we're not perfect now. And we, we can do better. We can do better than this. And, and we will. Senator, I know trains are one of your favorite modes of transportation. It's a really important issue to so many people and those in East Palestine. Thank you for joining us this morning. You bet. I ride the train four or five times a week. This is foremost on my mind. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Senator. The astronauts aboard a SpaceX Crew Dragon have officially docked with the International Space Station. We will show you their first moments inside the station next. Eight years ago, these first responders saved the life of a newborn baby boy who stopped breathing. Now they are again going beyond the call of duty to raise money for heart surgery that the boy desperately needs. Little Doug. To space now. This morning, four astronauts successfully docked at the International Space Station after taking off in a SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule from Florida on Thursday. 
NASA's Stephen Bowen and the first-time flyer Warren Woody Hoberg, along with colleagues from the UAE and Russia, will spend six months in space conducting science experiments, carrying out routine maintenance on the two-decade-old space station. They will take over from four astronauts currently there who will be returning home. Would you go? Are you kidding? Would you go to space? No way. I can barely get on a plane as it is. No. Caitlin probably would. You're, like, baller like that. I don't know if I would. I'm not so sure. No one's inviting either. Yet. You would really never get in a rocket. It's not really about flying. It's just like going, like you're away from the earth. And then, you know, if something happens, you just go out into nowhere. I don't know. Probably a smoother flight than a domestic <laughs> these days. <laughs> right on, right on. You're so you're going to love this next yeah. story, right? Because of what they're doing. Firefighters in Green Bay who once helped save the life of a Wisconsin newborn have now come to uh, rescue once again. Eight years later, they helped little Doug with health issues that nobody saw coming. CNN's Adrian Broadus has more on the first responders who went beyond the call of duty. I'm sorry. No, that's right. The Beale family kitchen is a battleground for little Doug. But his parents, Doug Sr. and Cammie, say playful moments like this almost didn't happen because their son was born at home premature. He was about five and a half weeks early. His eyes were open, but he wasn't breathing. Chad had him in his hand, and he was carrying him downstairs. That's Chad Bronkhorst. It was intense. Now a battalion chief with the Green Bay Metro Fire Department. These three were among the six firefighters and paramedics responding to the unresponsive newborn call eight years ago. You're doing a two-finger for a while, and then you're doing a thumb for a while. I'll never forget when he let out a little bit of a scream. We were high-fiving in the back of the truck. I was like, this is hope. They came to visit him in the hospital. They brought him a stuffed animal, which he still has. They've kept in touch, attending birthday parties, trips to the fire station, and then this summer, when a mechanical pump that does what Doug's heart can't began to fail, they showed up. Just, again, being right there for us. So we were in the hospital at Milwaukee. They had put him on end-of-life care. That's where the firemen were such a blessing because they had such a strong belief in him. They just knew this is a little fighter here, and he's going to make it, and he's going to be okay. They started a Dollars for Doug fundraiser so he could open his own bank account, one of Doug's wishes. That's tough. Yeah, I cried. It was a punch in the gut just because of the connection we had. Him coming back from day one was a miracle. I was like, this miracle can't end. Then, a surprise the firefighters weren't expecting. Dr. Adachi with Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas, took a chance by performing a life-saving surgery. Little Doug's making a history of our, you know, medical community. It's very rare. And she survived. Well, if this is what happens, keep, keep taking chances. Now, Doug is changing the batteries on the machine that pumps his heart and making big life deposits. He has paid us in ways that you can't put any dollar amount on. Adrian Broadus, CNN, Green Bay, Wisconsin. They should call him Miracle Doug, not just Little Doug. The whole time Poppy's like, oh. I know. Pretty cool, right? Pretty just the best. Yeah. And those, you saw how choked up those firefighters got. I love that. I love that. Adrian's reporting was great. All right. Turning the page here, <laughs> right? Speaking of greatness. Speaking of greatness. <laughs>
Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary has invested in more than 50 companies. They employ about 1,500 people. Who better to discuss the state of the job market? What is going on? We have Mr. Wonderful himself here next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's a thing. <laughs> this morning, welcome back. We'll tell you what the thing is in a moment. We hope your Friday is off to a great start. We're taking a closer look at the economy, the job market. One of the important indicators we use to measure the health of the economy is the number of first-time jobless claims for unemployment benefits. That number fell to 190,000 last week, about 2,000 fewer than the week before. It means the labor market is still pushing along strong. It makes seven weeks straight of jobless claims under 200,000. So who better to chat about this and a lot more? Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary has invested in more than 50 companies, employs about 1,500 people. All venture startups. Average size, about 30 employees. Does it annoy you when people call you Mr. Wonderful? Or? No, I All think right. it's an honor. You know, it, I th- We think it was Barbara 15 years ago. It was very facetious when I offered mm-hmm. the first royalty deal on Shark Tank. She said, oh, aren't you just Mr. Wonderful? And I said, yes. <laughs> like, actually, I like the sound of that. I Barbara do like Corker. the sound of that. My, my, my yeah. wife does not call me Mr. Wonderful. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's just start with why on earth it's so hard to hire and keep good employees these days? Over the last three years, there's a new generation of worker, particularly in financial services and in technology around engineering, that has no intention of working in an office. They never have, they never will. People keep saying, oh, they're all going to come back. They're not. So when you're out there hiring now, part of the negotiation is where they're going to work. And so if if you're competing, which we still are, because unemployment's under 4%. This is an extraordinary economy. We're supposedly going to a recession at full employment. makes no sense. But the, re- the reality is pumping $3 trillion into the economy has provided, provided a lot of liquidity. So we're hiring every day and we're competing every day and we cannot get them in the office. 44% of our employees now across our venture portfolio <clears throat> work remotely and they ain't coming into the office, period. Wow. That's it. That's just the way it's going to be. How's that for productivity? I found that it hasn't changed anything because they don't know anything else. Some of them just got out of college and started working out of their homes. They've never worked in an office. Basically, what it changes is it's, it's project management. You say to somebody, look, you've got to get this done by next Friday at noon. You don't really care when they do it. And they're not working nine to five as long as it gets done. So it changes the way you manage these companies. You're now pro- project management on everything. It's not nine to five. However... There's probably less private time on weekends. I call my employees 24-7. That's the deal. If you don't work in the office, I can call you at 2 in the morning. If we've got a crisis, and they're going to answer. That's the way they're used to it now. And we have people working for us in India, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in France, Switzerland, everywhere that have different skill sets. And here's the one thing that nobody saw coming. And this is the competition of states. I don't put companies here in New York anymore or in Massachusetts, or in New Jersey, or in California. Those states are uninvestable. The policy here is insane. The taxes are too high. We put them in Fargo, North Dakota, mm. because 40% of the people work elsewhere, including Boston. So I was, you know, a bit of a debate with Elizabeth Warren about this, but I say, look, Senator, we've got to move the companies out of your state because you're not investable anymore. You're punishing people if they're successful. You overtax them. You hit them with a super tax. New Jersey, what a mess. New York, uninvestable. And Wait, California. why is New York uninvestable? Try and do a project in New York. Try and build but, a data. Yeah, I'm asking, Don's point, is it beyond the taxes? Oh, the regulatory environment is 
punitive. I had a project in upstate New York behind the grid in Niagara Falls for electricity, a global data center we were building. Eventually, it got so bad with the, the politicians in the local region and the state policy, we moved it to Norway and all the jobs. Wow. Norway has it now. Thousands of jobs coming out of that. I mean, that is, that's New York, uninvestable. Sorry, don't shoot the messenger, just telling you the way it is. Mm. Yeah, that's it, uninvestable. Some pushback from our, our elected officials in New York I on that. I was going to say Kathy Hochul. Yeah. But I'll debate it, them any time of the day you want. Uh, we would love to set that the AOC, that. she's great at killing jobs. She kills jobs by the thousands. You know, another New Jersey problem. Where did Amazon take their jobs? They took them away from her. She threatened to sue them if they created jobs. I mean, this is a reality. This is a reality that the business... There's a little more to it, but let's not relitigate well, that. Well, you know, sorry. I'm just telling the truth. He's, he's saying what a lot of people are saying, especially what happened with that Amazon thing here in New York. Just real quickly, I don't want to the conversation, but what, what was Elizabeth Warren's response when you said that to her? Look, I have a lot of respect for her because it's okay to have a debate about politics, but not policy. Mm -hmm. When you have punitive policy, you're making a mistake. And I want to just put up my hand and say, I don't agree, Senator, with your policy. I respect you as a politician, a very successful one. You know, she's very successful. And that's the state where I grew my kids. I mean, our family grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. We left there to move to Florida like everybody else is because it's such a tough place to, you know, this is a tough message. People really are critical about this, but somebody has to call it out because this is a competition of states now and we don't put money there anymore. We put it in other places and jobs are created elsewhere. Over time, this is gonna diminish New Jersey, diminish New York, diminish Massachusetts and California out of business, out of business, el morte, no business there. You can't do business there. I don't know what that place is gonna turn into, maybe a tourist zone but no business. Imagine San Francisco. You can't even walk at night out in the street. Sorry. Talk about what's happening, though, in other areas, not just on the coast, because, you know, I'm from Alabama, and with hiring workers, what you were talking about a moment ago, is a real issue. I have a family member. They moved to paper checks that they distribute on Fridays because they were having difficulty getting people to actually come to work even five days a week. It's a real thing. But when we talk about layoffs in the tech sector, which we talk about a bunch here, but that's not reflected in the economy as a whole. That seems specific to them. But other than that, you're not seeing the level of layoffs uh, no, in that sense. No, the truth sense. is that 65% of our economy is companies between five and 500 employees. And those are the mom and pa businesses that make up the core and the success of the American economy. And they're doing quite well right now because the consumer is still really well-financed. And so you ask, why do we still have inflation on core items like food and energy? Because there's a lot of money sloshing around the system. It's a remarkable time. Full employment, rates going up at the fastest they've ever done since the 60s. And still, you know, people are pointing to a lot of success in small business. Most of our companies are having very good quarters right now. And people talk about tech. Tech's a little different. I mean, you know, they overhired a bit. And it got very frothy, and now they're cutting back. But tech is only 22% of the S&P. There are 11 sectors. What about the rest? They're doing quite well. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it's an interesting time in America. There's a lot of politics. But I think we should all be focusing on policy now. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter. If you remember JFK, he was very pro-business Democrat. There's lots of great Democrats that do terrific work in business. I don't care who's in the White House. I care about policy. Can I ask you just then finally on policy? Since you care so much about policy, I you've do. already named, made your name in business. You have a lot of thoughts for a lot of lawmakers. Why don't you run? Oh, 
I did run once. You know, I'm a Canadian, I'm Emirati, and I'm also Irish. So I ran uh, for leadership in the Conservative Party in Canada in 2016. And I want to make a comment that I think you'll appreciate. I have such respect for every politician I've met since then. It's the hardest job in the world to get up at four in the morning, campaign in a small town, move to the next town, to the next town, to the next town, all day long, working 20 hours a day. And then the difference between celebrity and politics, in celebrity, people don't like you. In politics, 50% of the constituency hates you. <laughs> and that is a whole different... Depends on what politician you are. I'm yeah. telling you, I don't care what side of the bench you're Doesn't on. Doesn't matter. Right. There's a lot of crazy stuff happens to your family, and every, every politician will tell you this. I respect them. I don't have to agree with them, but I respect every one of them, even Elizabeth Warren, who I don't Appreciate agree on anything. Appreciate you saying that. There's it's a true. way to disagree on policy yeah. and not attack She's a fantastic person. politician. She can really raise money. But, boy, do I disagree with her on policy. It's a discussion that needs to be had, what you were talking about, you know, places that are uninvestable right now and not really, you know. Well, we're sitting in one right here. Sorry. That's, right a, bigger, that's a bigger conversation. We're going to ask Governor Hochul for her response. Yes, to that. we are. Please, please. That debate. See it here on CNN this morning. No, no money for this place. Sorry. Kevin, that's thanks. it. Good to see you, Kevin. Thank Take you. care. Thank, Thank you. Have a good weekend. CNN this morning continues right now. Guilty verdict signed by the four lady, three two twenty three. And we had no doubt that if we had a chance to present our case in a court of law, that they would see through the one last con that Alec Murdoch was trying to pull. And they did, and we're so grateful for that. The prosecution team in South Carolina feeling good this morning. They got that verdict within just about Fast. three hours. And now we are waiting for them to be back in the courtroom this morning because the sentencing hearing is going to be underway. Good morning, everyone. Alec Murdoch has been found guilty on all counts in the double murder of his own wife and son. This morning, we'll find out if he's going to get life in prison. South Carolina's attorney general is going to join us live here on the program as the judge is preparing to sentence Murdoch. Plus, emotions running high in East Palestine, Ohio last night, outraged and desperate families demanding to be relocated after last month's toxic train derailment. And two families brought together by tragedy. We will speak to the parents of television journalist and nine-year-old girl killed in last week's shooting spree near Orlando. But we're going to begin with the news out of Walterboro, South Carolina. Alec Murdoch has been convicted of murdering his own wife and son. The jury finding the disgraced lawyer guilty on all counts. One of the jurors just spoke to Good Morning America, said it only took really about 45 minutes of deliberating for the entire jury to agree he was guilty. When you first got in the room, you took a vote? It was two not guilty one not sure, and nine guilty. What was your vote? Guilty. He started deliberating, going through the evidence. Everybody was pretty much talking. And know, about 45 minutes later, we, after all our deliberating, we figured it out. Inside the jury room. Here's what that juror thought, though, about Alec Murdoch's tearful testimony when he took the stand. I didn't see any true remorse or 
any compassion or anything. Even though he was, he, he cried a lot on the he, stand. He never cried. He never cried. What do you mean by that? All he did was blow snot. Did you not see tears? No tears. CNN's Diane Gallagher has been following this trial since the beginning. Diane, it's remarkable to see after days and weeks of testimony now, all of a sudden this verdict came down in less than three hours, and now it's less than two hours we're going to find out about the sentence. What are you seeing on the ground? That's right, Caitlin. You know, that juror said that it was that key piece of evidence, a video found on Paul Murdoch's phone more than six months after he was murdered, that featured his father's voice, putting him at the scene of the crime minutes before the state says Maggie and Paul were murdered, that convinced the juror that Alec Murdoch was guilty. Now, you can probably see behind me, there are people lined up, ready to get in to see this sentencing. Alec Murdoch showed no real emotion when the jurors read the verdict. We will hear victim impact statements uh, to see today uh, before the judge does his sentence. Guilty. Verdict, verdict, guilty, verdict, guilty, verdict, guilty. Alec Murdoch, a scion from a prominent local family of lawyers and solicitors, found guilty of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul after just three hours of jury deliberations. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or people think you have. It doesn't matter what you think, how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. The jury was seen with their heads down, never looking in Murdoch's direction as the verdict was read. The prominent former attorney's only living son, Buster, was present in the courtroom while the guilty verdict was read, appearing at times to wipe tears from his eyes. After the guilty verdict came down, the judge denied a motion from the defense asking for a mistrial and to set aside the verdict. The evidence of guilt is overwhelming and I deny the motion. The prosecution has indicated they will be seeking a life sentence without the possibility of parole, sparing him the death penalty. The case wrapped up earlier Thursday with the defense's closing arguments, attempting one last time to poke holes in the state's case. Their theory is that he slaughtered his wife and son to distract from an impending financial investigation. But he puts himself in the middle of a murder investigation and he puts himself in the spotlight of a media firestorm. And further slamming the investigation. We believe that we've shown conclusively that SLED failed miserably in investigating this case. The jury was unswayed by this defense, favoring the prosecution's argument that Murdoch was the only one with the motive, means, and opportunity to kill his wife and son. He did it. Nobody else could have done it. Nobody else did do it. Over the roughly six-week trial, the prosecution presented its case featuring testimony from 61 witnesses with phone forensics and extensive evidence of Murdoch's financial misdeeds. Our criminal justice system worked tonight. It gave a voice to Maggie and Paul Murdoch.
Uh, you can see again the line getting longer here outside the courthouse. We've seen this each morning starting around 4 a.m., sometimes earlier, because of all of the different interests around the entire country, but especially here in the low country in this case. Uh, this is a day that I talked to some of those trial watchers who have shown up every day. They wanted to see. Many of them surprised that the jury came back with a verdict so quickly, interested to see how Judge Clifton Newman delivers this sentence. Alec Murdoch facing between 30 years and life in prison on those murder charges. Look, he does have a reputation uh, for giving stiff sentences. We anticipate hearing victim impact statements. The attorneys will make their cases on what the sentencing should be. And then Alec Murdoch will go to prison for the, the deaths, the murders of his wife and his son. We don't know who is going to be in the courtroom, whether or not we're going to see his son Buster again, how that is going to sort of work out with the Murdoch family. Uh, but we anticipate all of that, Caitlin, to happen around 9.30 this morning. I spoke briefly with defense attorney Jim Griffin last night. He said they wouldn't comment fully on, this, on the verdict until after the sentencing, but told me they were very disappointed in that verdict. Yeah, Diane, it's just been a trial that has captivated the nation. I mean, I feel like everyone yeah. I know has been watching this. There's people lining up outside, a lot of people watching yeah. it on television as well. Diane Gallagher, we know you'll be watching it as well when the sentencing gets underway this morning. And in just a few moments, we're going to talk to Alan Wilson. He's South Carolina's attorney general about his view on the verdict. Meantime, outrage, fear and desperation boiling over in East Palestine, Ohio last night. I'm begging you, by the grace of God, Please get our people powerful. Yes. Those are families demanding to be relocated from their homes at an emotional town hall meeting. They are afraid their kids are going to get cancer. They don't feel safe living there anymore. This is after the toxic train derailment spilled chemicals and burned a month ago last night. Norfolk Southern's company representatives tried to reassure everyone there, but they just got nearful. We are so very sorry for what happened. We feel horrible about it. We have a plan. We have a plan to do that. We're ready to start tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Army Gal Marcos joins us again live in East Palestine, Ohio. That said everything. That it sounds like anything short of enough money to leave and live somewhere else and get a job, et cetera, is not going to be yeah. enough. Uh, people are absolutely upset, angry. They want certainty. They want absolute answers. There are people who live near those tracks. And unfortunately, m many people are not going to hear the answers they want quickly enough. I want to show you sort of we are as close as we can get to the derailment site here. And work is starting. One thing they talked about last night, this is going to be a major piece of the cleanup here. The, there are two tracks, at least two tracks that run through there. Today, they've already started. There's, there's heavy equipment on the south tracks right now. They're going to start pulling up those south tracks, 
excavating those hundreds of thousands of tons of toxic material under those tracks, lay down new uh, soil, and then put those tracks back on, and then do the same thing on the north side. Uh, that is going to take some time. Uh, testing for dioxins is also going to happen now. This is something that people have asked for. EPA and, other, and the state uh, environmental protection uh, entities have been testing for the chemicals that were on the train, but they had not been testing for dioxins. Dioxins form when you burn plastic materials or other materials. It is harmful to humans, uh, and people have been very concerned about that. EPA now has a plan to test for dioxins, which is difficult to do because they are everywhere all the time, but they're going to test a very wide area to see if they can figure out if there is a higher level here. Uh, but all of this is going to take time. Uh, the, the, the tracks themselves, it, it, uh, officials saying it will take to the end of April before those north, south and north end tracks are pulled up, the soil removed. But even after that, there is going to be monitoring and continued cleanup for quite some time to, to come. Poppy? So much to come, Miguel. Thank you. We appreciate your reporting throughout this whole disaster for you the last it. month on the ground. We want to get you now to the weather system that has been hitting a big part of the south. Take a look now at these live pictures. It's from Little Elm, Texas. These are live from our affiliate KTVT there. This is where heavy winds damaged a shopping plaza and vehicles in a parking lot there. It looks like you're looking at a storefront. Again, these are from the chopper images coming from our affiliate there, and they are live pictures. Unbelievable what this storm has wrought on the south. Powerful storm packing a triple threat of large hail, damaging winds, and tornadoes tearing through the south overnight and into the morning. And in Louisiana, a twister touching down overnight. Louisiana State University campus there was damaged. Some homes and businesses destroyed. Look at that. You can see it rolling through there. Nearly four million people now under a new tornado watch across the Mississippi River Valley. Carlos Suarez is in Shreveport, Louisiana. Carlos, good morning to you. Looks like you're seeing lots of damage there. That's exactly right, uh, Don. Uh, good morning. That tornado that hit the Shreveport area was on the ground by all accounts for just a few seconds, well under a minute. But in that time, it managed to damage several homes, several businesses. The worst of it that we saw on our drive-in this morning is this laundromat here behind me. It's where you can see exactly just what this storm was able to do in the short time that it was on the ground. You can see the roof of the building was just torn off. The front, uh, uh, the sign out here fell on top of these three cars. Uh, there was one line of storms that moved in in the afternoon yesterday. That's when this tornado hit. Then we had a second line of storms that hit well into the night around 10 or 11 o'clock at night. But that line of storms only brought with it uh, some more rain as well as some strong winds. A cell phone video from uh, this part of Louisiana uh, captured exactly what was going on. Now, as about a, uh, an hour ago, we're told by the power company out here that about 1,000 people that live in this neighborhood are waking up without power. Guys, all right, Carlos Suarez in Shreveport, Louisiana. Thank you, Carlos. All right, in Washington today, President Biden is preparing to welcome the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to the White House. This is a face-to-face -face coming after a transformative 12 months for Germany and amid new concerns about Ukraine's struggle to fight off the Russian offensive. Today, the White House is set to announce another round of military aid to Ukraine. CNN's MJ Lee is live at the White House. MJ, the last time the German chancellor was where you are now, Russia had not invaded Ukraine. How different is this meeting going to look like today? You know, what does the White House definitely want to have out on the agenda for them? 
Yeah, Caitlin, you know, it's really pretty extraordinary if you think about how much the last year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began has really transformed President Biden's presidency, his foreign policy, and also the United States' relationship with its Western allies. And I think when the German chancellor visits here at the White House later today, we are going to see all of that in such clear focus. Uh, you're absolutely right that the last time that the two leaders met here in Washington, the invasion had not yet begun. And over the course of the last year, we have really seen the two leaders at the forefront of trying to figure out this new world of the Ukraine war and sort of staying together and working together to keep the alliance of countries banded together to support Ukraine. Uh, they don't always, though, it's worth pointing out, see eye to eye on everything in terms of how to handle the conflict, particularly when it comes to what kind of assistance uh, Germany should offer Ukraine and how much. And so that is certainly uh, expected to be a topic of discussion as well as they try to figure out, well, what is sort of the uh, path forward as this war drags on? And particularly if they're open to having discussions as well about how possibly this war can come to an end, Caitlin. Yeah, major questions. And of course, notable, there is no press conference between the two leaders today. MJ Lee, we know you'll be watching the visit closely, though. Thank you so much. Unspeakable heartbreak in Orlando after a gunman killed a young journalist and a nine-year-old girl. Their families are here next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I'm so sorry to my son because I wish I could have taken the bullet. <laughs> me too. Me too. Sorry, me. She was just my heart, my angel. Like, and I'm going to miss her so much. <laughs> Boy, family members speaking out for the first time since their loved ones were shot and killed outside Orlando last week. We told you about the killings of journalist Dylan Lyons and third grader Tiana Major. And I want to remind you of the horrific chain of events that led to their deaths. The gunman's multi-scene rampage started last Wednesday when he allegedly shot an acquaintance in a car. Police say the gunman later returned to the same area and shot two Spectrum News 13 journalists who were at the scene to report on that first incident. 24-year-old reporter Dylan Lyons was killed. Photojournalist Jesse Walden was critically injured. And moments after they were shot, authorities say that the suspect entered a home on a nearby street and shot a mother and her nine-year-old daughter, Tiana. The accused gunman is 19-year-old Keith Moses. And according to the Orange County Sheriff's Office, he has been arrested nearly 20 times before. He is now facing three first-degree murder charges, among others. So joining us now and speaking out together, the parents of nine-year-old Tiana Major, Tokyo, and Brandy Major, the parents of Dylan Lyons, Gary, and Beth Lyons, as well as Dylan's fiance, Casey Fight, along with their attorney, Mark Nijane. Good morning. Um, thank you. I'm so sorry for your loss. And Let's just get through this and honor your loved ones. So thank you for joining us this morning. Brandy in Tokyo, I'm going to start with you. Tell us about Tiana. Tokyo, Tokyo why don't you go first? She was my everything. Hi, my name is Tokyo. Amazing, my daughter was everything to me. Also my wife and son. 
Tiana was so sweet and energetic. She loves to go on walks with me and mom, and Reese is our dog. At the age of three, we took her to a tryout for gymnastics, and you see she loved it. So we kept it in it. She was so great, as you can see, <laughs> by the mothers around my neck, a total of 26. Yaya was smart. She read so well, I read to her every night. She had the first of her grades wasn't perfect, so we studied till we got them up. She made me watch Gabby Douglas over a million times. So that's why I named her my little Gabby Douglas. Because I knew she was going to be my little Olympian. I miss her so dearly. I can't sleep, I'm lost. It feel like my heart and soul is gone. She was my pillow, my everything. She was my yaya. She never wanted me mad. She loves cooking with me. She was my whole world. I did everything in my body to make her happy. Mm -hmm. <sighs> no, baby. And worse, she made me a girl dad in a gymnastic dad. I will always be her number one fan. Y'all, y'all strong. <laughs> She's my world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was my baby. Oh, she was my Brandy. angel. She was my twin. Brandy, but I know you want to speak about your about Yaya. Um, you were shot as well. How are you doing? Yes, I'm doing better. Better. It gets better and better every day. But my heart hurts more than anything. Sometimes I just wish. It I could have took every bullet for her, and she could be here and still shining and showing y'all how great she is. <sighs> it's just so hard for me. I took her to school every morning. I picked her up from school every morning, and in between them times, I missed her so much. And when we get in the car, we would tell each other how much we miss each other, and it was only a few hours. So I'm just dying. It's, I'm dying. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. Gary and Beth, I see you're dealing with your own hurt, <laughs> and I see that you are there trying to help another family. What do you want everyone to know about Dylan. Beth, why don't you go first? That he was the most wonderful person, the most wonderful son in the world. He would help anybody before himself. He wanted to get this story out there. It didn't make a difference of your color, your religion, your money. He was there for everybody. <laughs> he, he was just the apple of my eye. He was a mama's boy that would do anything for me, anything for me in the world. He was, um, when Dylan died, I died. I died. I, I have me died. He was just the most wonderful son, person in the world. And then when he met Casey, he was so happy. He said, Mom, 
I met my dream girl. <laughs> he met my dream girl. He wanted to marry her and have their children together. It just, he was so happy after he met Casey. He just met, he was the most wonderful son, mother. And when he met her, he treated her the same way. It, it's just heartbreaking. He wanted to get this story out there for other people. For anybody, he would do it. He would just do anything for anybody. <laughs> and it's not right that I'm sitting here. It's not. It's just not right. It's not, Ben. I'm so sorry. He's supposed to be on TV, not us. Right. <laughs> that was his dream to make it to New York. And everybody said as a young journalist, he would. He was a go-getter. Go-getter. And he was so kind to people when he was interviewed. The day before he was killed, he, mm -hmm. someone said him a letter that they, they have confidence in journalists because he was so kind the way he interviewed the person. I don't know what else to say. He was just the most wonderful son in the world. Yeah. Uh, Casey, <laughs> if you can speak right now, I know you lost your fiance, the love of your life. What do you want people to know about Dylan? I can't. I'm sorry, it popped out of my ear. That's your Casey. Uh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, it popped out of my ear. That's your talking Dylan was <coughs> what I always dreamed of. Mm -hmm. I always wanted a man like him, mm -hmm. and it took it took a long time to find him, and I'm. I'm just so devastated that it was ripped from me so, so early. We had so many plans and we were so excited just to live our life together with our family and grow with that family, adding a baby and another baby. We wanted to have three babies. We have the names picked out already. We just... We were so happy. I know that you are um, going to try now, correct, to make part of that dream come true. Yes, and I'm just completely devastated he won't be here with me because it's all we ever wanted. Gary, what do you want to say? Don, I just want to say Dylan was my only son. He was an exemplary son, brother, uncle to my, sister, my daughter's children. He used to do everything in the world for them. And he was, he was taking care of Casey. He was great to Casey, loved Casey. Um, Dylan loved being a journalist. He always wanted to tell the story for the people who weren't there to tell them to hear <laughs> the story of the life. But Don, today, it's about the bonding between our families. We're bonded forever because of this tragedy and we want change in America. We want change because this should never happen. This person should have never had a gun and our lives are forever brokenhearted. But we've, <laughs> we've, we've cried with Tokyo and Brandy. We, we shared each other's lives, stories about our children. We're fathers and mothers and fiancés who've lost such a, our lives will never be the same. And we just want change in America. <laughs> Mark, uh, 
you know, Gary mentioned uh, he should never have had a gun. There are reasons, very strong reasons, why you took this case to help these families. Talk to us about that. Thank you, Don. Uh, the family all believe they've been political pawns, and, and, and it's just a shame that people are exploiting their children's deaths. Um, there's been a seemingly political vendetta going on by Senator Rick Scott and Governor DeSantis against our local prosecutor, Monique Worrell, um, and claiming that it was because of her that he was on the streets. Well, as we understand it, any of his prior juvenile offenses, none of which in Florida are considered convictions, uh, all took place before her administration. And the only case that took place during her administration was 4.6 grams of marijuana misdemeanor, which had nothing to do with this case. And for them to seize and exploit this, these families' pain and misery and avoid the real issue, and that is um, sane and responsible gun legislation in America, which we do not have, and we see those like DeSantis and those like Scott promoting, I mean, they're talking about open carry laws now in, in Florida, which is only going to lead to more misery and death. And this is the face of, of the victims who get routinely murdered in the United States, where this doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. We've got to do something more than we're doing. And part of the reason that we're here is so that America can see the face of grieving families who've lost their loved ones. And, and we just have to stop this insanity and stop using children and victims as political pawns as these self-serving politicians seem to be doing. Well, listen. Don, um, can I say something? Yes, go on, please. It's just that... You know, we've heard from politicians, we've heard from the sheriff, we've heard from so many people, but yet we haven't heard from our governor or our senator who seem to want to publicize it for their own ambitions or for their affiliations. They're fathers. They have children. How could they be so callous as to not even call us and extend their sympathy that we've lost? Regardless if you're Democrat, Republican, white or black, it doesn't make a difference. We've lost our children and not even the callers or have anybody reach out to say we're sorry. I thought it was so cold. And in I, fact, I, if I, I could, uh, the, the comments have been no comment. Yeah. And they had a lot to say previously until they were called out. So we're just hoping that um, these, these lost souls these children of these beautiful people who I've gotten to know, and uh, they're just amazing. They, they are America, and we have to stop this. And, uh, and they are brave enough to come forward and share their stories with the country and the, with the world. And hopefully, more sanity will start um, taking over, yeah. where we, we've got to stop this, this love we have of, of, of guns. Well, Mark... Thank you. I know that there's, you know, you've mentioned the, the children and um, Casey, you're trying to carry on, as I mentioned, you know, you want to have a kid um, without your loved one and you were able to secure that. And so hopefully that works out. And Mark, you said mm -hmm. there is a, a GoFundMe, right? Yeah. What's, what's happened is uh, Casey is, 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 is beyond broken up. Um, they were able to harvest... Um, um, Dylan Seaman, 
they had the presence of mind after he was killed. And so it's, it's being preserved and she wants to have their baby together. So um, she has gone ahead, it's Casey Fight, F-I-T-E, on GoFundMe to um, secure funds so that that, that miracle can continue and his legacy can live on. Uh, and all the families have, have um, GoFundMe accounts under the names of, of their children. And so we ask the public to, to um, consider because they, they have to move forward. So well, they each, each one has a GoFundMe account under their name, under Tiana and under Dylan and, and now under Casey. So thank you for allowing Mark, us that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tokyo, Brandy, Beth, Gary, Casey. Be well. I'm so sorry for your loss, but we, I, I can't even imagine doing what you just did and what you're going through, but thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Okay, they, they came, I don't know the song, but I always wanted to do the guest that she loved to do. <laughs> that was her thing. <laughs> thank you, everyone. I want to do that. We'll be right back. <laughs> thank you. Oh, wait, is that just me? They're doing it, too. We were we're not. <laughs> All right, Poppy, let's do it. Forward or spelling bee, everyone with a phone, was playing HQ Trivia. Now the new CNN film Glitch, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia, reveals the crazy story behind the revolutionary game show app and how it crashed and burned in record time. Here's a preview. This is HQ. I'm Scott, the host. HQ Trivia was everywhere. You could actually win real money. It just got so popular. The app is not ready to work. And it crashes. And that's when the cracks started showing. Russ and Colin were polar opposites. There was jealousy. It leads to chaos. So joining us now, the director of Glitch, Salima Karoma. Um, Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. The, the, it's important, really, you can't really overstate how popular this app was. I mean, it went from just a couple hundred players to yes. like hundreds of thousands of players. Millions. Real, millions. Millions. Money in real time. So what, what happened? Ah, that is the point of this film is to figure out how did this thing that was the most popular app in America and some even overseas how, why did this crash and burn, right? Um, this was a game that you played twice a day, um, and you had these great hosts, specifically one uh, named Scott Rogowski, who was funny. It felt like he was talking to you, right? You, you, you watch Jeopardy, um, and imagine if it's like Jeopardy on your phone and you know Alex Trebek on your phone talking to you as you're answering the questions, right? Um, you get to be a game show contestant in real time. And so I think that's something that people were obsessed with um, and having it right in your hand. So what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that you like dissected that in an entire film and it's hard to sum up, but it is one of those things you're like, oh yeah, what, ha what did what happen? We were all obsessed with it and then it's just gone. Right, okay, so I don't know if you guys remember Vine, right? Yes. Um, yes. Vine, which was the precursor to TikTok. The guys who created HQ, um, they created Vine. And there's a whole story there about why Vine 
um, imploded. And it's very similar reason to why HQ trivia imploded. One, you know, it's this huge rise um, and the tech is not ready for that, right? They're not expecting it. And then for me, what was interesting was the two founders who founded Vine um, were really brilliant, but ultimately couldn't get along. Um, and when you can't get along, uh, making the biggest app in the world, uh, it begins to crumble and you see it in the technology. Were even you shocked making this, making this film? I'll tell you what I was shocked by. I was shocked by how, <laughs> I was shocked by um, the fact that this was supposed to revolutionize TV, right? This was supposed to revolutionize the way that we watch TV. And these guys like, they got close to the sun. What's the thing? You get too close to the sun, you burn. Right, the Icarus thing. Yeah. And so for me, I loved. You know, I'm from the TV world. I want to see. I love Jeopardy. I would love to see a, a revolutionized kind of Jeopardy. Um, and what's shocking is that they got too close to the sun, and it didn't happen. Mm. Yep. It's, all, so it's like a rock band story. Totally. Great rock band, and then yes. all of a sudden nobody totally. gets along. And wait till people see the ending, I hear. Yeah. I can't wait to watch Dun, dun, dun. Thank, thank you. you. Salima Karama, thank you. Good to see you. Thank Glitch, you the rise and fall of HQ Trivia premieres Sunday, 9 p.m., right here on CNN. Also, it is the story that everyone has been talking about this morning, but also just for weeks now, in about half an hour, the disgraced South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch is going to be sentenced after a jury convicted him last night after three hours of murdering his wife, and his son. We're going to take you into the courtroom. That's next. All right, we are kicking off this year's CNN Heroes campaign by catching up with one of last year's top 10 honorees, the Alaskan nurse you all remember, Teresa Gray. Her nonprofit, Mobile Medics International, has responded to dozens of humanitarian disasters, not just in the U.S., worldwide. When the devastating earthquake hit Turkey and Syria, guess what? She mobilized. I need some 10cc syringes. It's pretty frantic leading up to a mission. Okay, so this bag is ready to go. Making sure we have the right equipment, the right medications. We have enough for hundreds of patients. We're going to be sleeping in a tent, eating MREs. This is not going to be a good time. Three days after the earthquake, Teresa landed in Turkey. She and her team soon headed to Hatay province. This is apocalyptic. I'm here on the streets of Samadan. We're doing mobile clinics, and all the people are living here in these tents now because the buildings have either fallen down or about to fall down. So we go street to street to street, and we stop at these little tent cities. We're seeing earthquake injuries, lacerations. Did something fall on him in the earthquake? We saw a child who'd been trapped in the rubble for well over 12 hours. We're seeing coughs, colds, flus from living together. Whatever it is they need us to look at, we will. Then we go back, sleep in our car, get up the next morning and do it again. They treated hundreds of people, and one family adopted Teresa's group as their own. This is my new Turkish mama. And these people have taken us in, and they've allowed us to stay on their property, and they've given us tea. Tell her that we are so grateful for her. Another reminder that even in desperate times, You're welcome. <laughs> humanity can shine through. I know. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. She is quite the force. To nominate your own CNN hero, just go to CNNHeroes.com. We are so glad you were with us all week. We'll see you Monday, but just minutes from now, Alex Murdoch will learn his sentence after he was found guilty of murdering his wife and son. Stay with CNN for that live right after this.
That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.